Dean Swift and the Two Esters, Volume Four of Famous Affinities of History. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Barry Eads. Famous Affinities of History by Lyndon Orr, Volume Four. Dean Swift and the Two Esters. The story of Jonathan Swift and of the two women who gave their lives for love of him is familiar to every student of English literature. Swift himself, both in letters and in politics, stands out a conspicuous figure in the reigns of King William III and Queen Anne. By writing Gulliver's Travels he made himself immortal. The external facts of his singular relations with two charming women are sufficiently well known, but a definite explanation of these facts has never yet been given. Swift held his tongue with a repellent taciturnity. No one ever dared to question him. Whether the true solution belongs to the sphere of psychology or of physiology is a question that remains unanswered. But as the case is one of the most puzzling in the annals of love, it may be well to set forth the circumstances very briefly, to weigh the theories that have already been advanced, and to suggest another. Jonathan Swift was of Yorkshire stock though he happened to be born in Dublin, and thus is often spoken of as the great Irish satirist, or the Irish Dean. It was, in truth, his fate to spend much of his life in Ireland, and to die there, near the cathedral where his remains now rest. But in truth he hated Ireland and everything connected with it, just as he hated Scotland and everything that was Scottish. He was an Englishman to the core. High-stomached, proud, obstinate, and overmastering, independence was the dream of his life. He would accept no favors, lest he should put himself under obligation, and although he could give generously, and even lavishly, he lived for the most part a miser's life, hoarding every penny and halfpenny that he could. Whatever one may think of him, there is no doubt that he was a very manly man. Too many of his portraits give the impression of a sour, supercilious pedant, but the finest of them all, that by Jervis, shows him as he must have been at his very prime, with a face that was almost handsome, and a look of attractive humor which strengthens rather than lessens the power of his brows and of the large lambent eyes beneath them. At fifteen he entered Trinity College in Dublin, where he read widely but studied little, so that his degree was finally granted him only as a special favor. At twenty-one he first visited England, and became secretary to Sir William Temple at Moor Park. Temple, after a distinguished career in diplomacy, had retired to his fine country estate in Surrey. He is remembered now for several things, for having entertained Peter the Great of Russia, for having, while young, won the affections of Dorothy Osborne, whose letters to him are charming in their grace and archness, for having been the patron of Jonathan Swift, and for fathering the young girl named Esther Johnson, a waif born out of wedlock to whom Temple gave a place in his household. When Swift first met her, Esther Johnson was only eight years old, and part of his duties at Moor Park consisted in giving her what was then an unusual education for a girl. She was, however, still a child, and nothing serious could have passed between the raw youth and this little girl who learned the lessons that he imposed upon her. Such acquaintance as they had was rudely broken off. Temple, a man of high position, treated Swift with an urbane condensation which drove the young man's independent soul into a frenzy. He returned to Ireland, 
where he was ordained a clergyman, and received a small parish at Kilroot, near Belfast. It was here that the love note was first seriously heard in the discordant music of Swift's career. A college friend of his, named Waring, had a sister who was about the age of Swift, and whom he met quite frequently at Kilroot. Not very much is known of this episode, but there is evidence that Swift fell in love with the girl, whom he rather romantically called Verena. This cannot be called a serious love affair. Swift was lonely, and Jane Waring was probably the only girl of refinement who lived near Kilroot. Furthermore, she had inherited a small fortune, while Swift was miserably poor, and had nothing to offer except the shadowy prospect of future advancement in England. He was definitely refused by her, and it was this, perhaps, that led him to resolve on going back to England, and making his peace with Sir William Temple. On leaving, Swift wrote a passionate letter to Miss Waring, the only true love-letter that remains to us of their correspondence. He protests that he does not want Verena's fortune, and that he will wait until he is in a position to marry her on equal terms. There is a smoldering flame of jealousy running through the letter. Swift charges her with being cold, affected, and willing to flirt with persons who are quite beneath her. Verena played no important part in Swift's larger life thereafter, but something must be said of this affair in order to show, first of all, that Swift's love for her was due only to proximity, and that when he ceased to feel it, he could be not only hard, but harsh. His fiery spirit must have made a deep impression on Miss Waring, for though she at the time refused him, she afterward remembered him, and tried to renew their old relations. Indeed, no sooner had Swift been made rector of a larger parish, than Verena let him know that she had changed her mind and was ready to marry him but by this time Swift had lost all interest in her. He wrote an answer which even his truest admirers have called brutal. Yes, he said in substance, I will marry you, though you have treated me vilely, and though you are living in a sort of social sink. I am still poor, though you probably think otherwise. However, I will marry you on certain conditions. First you must be educated, so that you can entertain me. Next you must put up with all my whims and likes and dislikes. Then you must live wherever I please. On these terms I will take you, without reference to your looks or to your income. As to the first, cleanliness is all that I require. As to the second, I only ask that it be enough. Such a letter as this was like a blow from a bludgeon. The insolence, the contempt, and the hardness of it were such as no self-respecting woman could endure. It put an end to their acquaintance, as Swift undoubtedly intended it should do. He would have been less censurable had he struck Verena with his fist or kicked her. The true reason for Swift's utter change of heart is found, no doubt, in the beginning of what was destined to be his long intimacy with Esther Johnson. When Swift left Sir William Temple's in a huff, Esther had been a mere schoolgirl. Now, on his return, she was fifteen years of age and seemed older. She had blossomed out into a very comely girl, vivacious, clever, and physically well-developed, with dark hair, sparkling eyes, and features that were unusually regular and lovely. For three years the two were close friends and intimate associates, though it cannot be said that Swift ever made open love to her. To the outward eye they were no more than fellow workers. Yet love does not need the spoken word and the formal declaration to give it life and make it deep and strong. Esther Johnson, to whom Swift gave the pet name of Stella, grew into the existence of this fiery, bold, and independent genius. All that he did she knew. 
she was his confidant. As to his writings, his hopes, and his enmities, she was the mistress of all his secrets. For her, at last, no other man existed. On Sir William Temple's death, Esther Johnson came into a small fortune, though she now lost her home at Moor Park. Swift returned to Ireland, and soon afterward he invited Stella to join him there. Swift was now thirty-four years of age, and Stella a very attractive girl of twenty. One might have expected that the two would marry, and yet they did not do so. Every precaution was taken to avoid anything like scandal. Stella was accompanied by a friend, a widow named Mrs. Dingley, without whose presence, or that of some third person, Swift never saw Esther Johnson. When Swift was absent, however, the two ladies occupied his apartments, and Stella became more than ever essential to his happiness. When they were separated for any length of time, Swift wrote to Stella in a sort of baby talk, which they called the little language. It was made up of curious abbreviations and childish words, growing more and more complicated as the years went on. It is interesting to think of this stern and often savage genius, who loved to hate, and whose hate was almost less terrible than his love, babbling and prattling in little half-caressing sentences, as a mother might babble over her first child. Pedantic writers have professed to find in Swift's use of this little language the coming shadow of that insanity which struck him down in his old age. As it is, these letters are among the curiosities of amatory correspondence. When Swift writes oo for you, and dealist for dearest, and veli for very, there is no need of an interpreter. But Riedel for letter, dallers for girls, and Giver for devil, are at first rather difficult to guess. Then there is a system of abbreviating. M.D. means my dear, P.P.T. means poppet, and P.D.F.R., with which Swift sometimes signed his epistles, poor, dear, foolish rogue. The letter reveals how very closely the two were bound together, yet still there was no talk of marriage. On one occasion, after they had been together for three years in Ireland, Stella might have married another man. This was a friend of Swift's, one Dr. Tisdale, who made energetic love to the sweet-faced English girl. Tisdale accused Swift of poisoning Stella's mind against him. Swift replied that such was not the case. He said that no feelings of his own would ever lead him to influence the girl if she preferred another. It is quite sure, then, that Stella clung wholly to Swift, and cared nothing for the proffered love of any other man. Thus, through the years, the relations of the two remained unchanged, until in 1710 Swift left Ireland and appeared as a very brilliant figure in the London drawing-rooms of the great Tory leaders of the day. He was now a man of mark because of his ability as a controversialist. He had learned the manners of the world, and he carried himself with an air of power which impressed all those who met him. Among those persons was a Miss Hester, or Esther, Van Homry, the daughter of a rather wealthy widow who was living in London at that time. Miss Van Homry, a name which she and her mother pronounced Van Murray, was then seventeen years of age, or twelve years younger than the patient Stella. Esther Johnson, through her long acquaintance with Swift, and from his confidence in her, had come to treat him almost as an intellectual equal. She knew all his moods, some of which were very difficult, and she bore them all, though when he was most tyrannous she became only passive, 
waiting, with a woman's wisdom, for the tempest to blow over. Miss Van Omri, on the other hand, was one of those girls who, though they have high spirit, take an almost voluptuous delight in yielding to a spirit that is stronger still. This beautiful creature felt a positive fascination in Swift's presence and his imperious manner. When his eyes flashed and his voice thundered out words of anger, she looked at him with adoration, and bowed in a sort of ecstasy before him. If he chose to accost a great lady with, Well, madam, are you as ill-natured and disagreeable as when I met you last, Esther Van Homry thrilled at the insolent audacity of the man. Her evident fondness for him exercised a seductive influence over Swift. As the two were thrown more and more together, the girl lost all her self-control. Swift did not in any sense make love to her, though he gave her the somewhat fanciful name of Vanessa, but she, driven on by a high-strung, unbridled temperament, made open love to him. When he was about to return to Ireland, there came one startling moment when Vanessa flung herself into the arms of Swift, and amazed him by pouring out a torrent of passionate endearments. Swift seems to have been surprised. He did what he could to quiet her. He told her that they were too unequal in years and fortune for anything but friendship, and he offered to give her as much friendship as she desired. Doubtless he thought that, after returning to Ireland, he would not see Vanessa any more. In this, however, he was mistaken. An ardent girl, with a fortune of her own, was not to be kept from the man whom absence only made her love the more. In addition, Swift carried on his correspondence with her, which served to fan the flame and to increase the sway that Swift had already acquired. Vanessa wrote, and with every letter she burned and pined. Swift replied, and each reply enhanced her yearning for him. Ere long, Vanessa's mother died, and Vanessa herself hastened to Ireland and took up her residence near Dublin. There, for years, was enacted this tragic comedy. Esther Johnson was near Swift, and had all his confidence. Esther Van Omri was kept apart from him, while still receiving misses from him, and, later, even visits. It was at this time, after he had become Dean of St. Patrick's Cathedral, in Dublin, that Swift was married to Esther Johnson, for it seems probable that the ceremony took place, though it was nothing more than a form they still saw each other only in the presence of a third person. Nevertheless, some knowledge of their close relationship leaked out. Stella had been jealous of her rival during the years that Swift spent in London. Vanessa was now told that Swift was married to the other woman, or that she was his mistress. Writhing with jealousy, she wrote directly to Stella, and asked whether she was Dean Swift's wife. In answer, Stella replied that she was, and then she sent Vanessa's letter to Swift himself. All the fury of his nature was roused in him, and he was a man who could be very terrible when angry. He might have remembered the intense love which Vanessa bore for him, the humility with which she had accepted his conditions, and finally the loneliness of this girl. But Swift was utterly unsparing. No gleam of pity entered his heart as he leapt upon a horse and galloped out to Marley Abbey, where she was living. His prominent eyes arched by jet-black brows, and glaring with the green fury of a cat's. Reaching the house, he dashed into it, with something awful in his looks, made his way to Vanessa, threw her letter down upon the table, and after giving her one frightful glare, turned on his heel, and in a moment more was galloping back to Dublin. The girl fell to the floor in an agony of terror and remorse. She was taken to her room, and only three weeks afterward was carried forth, having died literally of a broken heart. 
Five years later, Stella also died, withering away a sacrifice to what the world has called Swift's cruel heartlessness and egotism. His greatest public triumphs came to him in his final years of melancholy isolation, but in spite of the applause that greeted the drapier letters and Gulliver's travels, he brooded morbidly over his past life. At last his powerful mind gave way, so that he died a victim of senile dementia. By his directions his body was interred in the same coffin with Stella's, in the cathedral of which he had been dean. Such is the story of Dean Swift, and it has always suggested several curious questions. Why, if he loved Stella, did he not marry her long before? Why, when he married her, did he treat her still as if she were not his wife? Why did he allow Vanessa's love to run like a scarlet thread across the fabric of the other affection, which must have been so strong? Many answers have been given to these questions. That which was formulated by Sir Walter Scott is a simple one, and has been generally accepted. Scott believed that Swift was physically incapacitated for marriage, and that he needed feminine sympathy, which he took where he could get it, without feeling bound to give anything in return. If Scott's explanation be the true one, it still leaves Swift exposed to ignominy as a monster of ingratitude. Therefore, many of his biographers have sought other explanations. No one can palliate his conduct toward Vanessa, but Sir Leslie Stephen makes a plea for him with reference to Stella. Sir Leslie points out that until Swift became Dean of St. Patrick's, his income was far too small to marry on, and that after his brilliant but disappointing three years in London, when his prospects of advancement were ruined, he felt himself a broken man. Furthermore, his health was always precarious, since he suffered from a distressing illness which attacked him at intervals, rendering him both deaf and giddy. The disease is now known as Meniere's disease, from its classification by the French physician Meniere, in 1861. Swift felt that he lived in constant danger of some sudden stroke that would deprive him either of life or reason, and his ultimate insanity makes it appear that his forebodings were not wholly futile. Therefore, though he married Stella, he kept the marriage secret, thus leaving her free, in case of his demise, to marry as a maiden, and not to be regarded as a widow. Sir Leslie offers the further plea that, after all, Stella's life was what she chose to make it. She enjoyed Swift's friendship, which she preferred to the love of any other man. Another view is that of Dr. Richard Garnett, who has discussed the question with some subtlety. Swift, says Dr. Garnett, was by nature devoid of passion. He was fully capable of friendship, but not of love. The spiritual realm, whether of divine or earthly things, was a region closed to him, where he never set foot. On the side of friendship he must greatly have preferred Stella to Vanessa, and yet the latter assailed him on his weakest side, on the side of his love of imperious domination. Vanessa hugged the fetters to which Stella merely submitted. Flattered to excess by her surrender, yet conscious of his obligations and his real preference, he could neither discard the one beauty nor desert the other. Therefore he temporized with both of them, and when the choice was forced upon him, he madly struck down the woman for whom he cared the less. One may accept Dr. Garnett's theory with a somewhat altered conclusion. It is not true, as a matter of recorded fact, that Swift was incapable of passion, for when a boy at college he was sought out by various young women, and he sought them out in turn. His fiery letter to Miss Waring points to the same conclusion. When Esther Johnson began to love him, he was heart-free, 
yet unable, because of his straitened means, to marry. But Esther Johnson always appealed more to his reason, his friendship, and his comfort, than to his love, using the word in its material physical sense. This love was stirred in him by Vanessa. Yet when he met Vanessa he had already gone too far with Esther Johnson to break the bond which had so long united them, nor could he think of a life without her, for she was to him his other self. At the same time his more romantic association with Vanessa roused those instincts which he had scarcely known himself to be possessed of. His position was, therefore, most embarrassing. He hoped to end it when he left London and returned to Ireland. But fate was unkind to him in this, because Vanessa followed him. He lacked the will to be frank with her, and thus he stood a wretched, halting victim of his own dual nature. He was a clergyman, and at heart religious. He had also a sense of honor, and both of these traits compelled him to remain true to Esther Johnson. The terrible outbreak which brought about Vanessa's death was probably the wild frenzy of a tortured soul. It recalls the picture of some fierce animal brought at last to bay, and venting its own anguish upon any object that is within reach of its fangs and claws. No matter how the story may be told, it makes one shiver, for it is a tragedy in which the three participants all meet their doom, one crushed by a lightning-bolt of unreasoning anger, the other wasting away through hope deferred, while the man whom the world will always hold responsible was himself destined to end his years blind and sleepless, bequeathing his fortune to a madhouse, and saying, with his last muttered breath, I am a fool. End of Dean Swift and the Two Esters